0: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. This is James Altucher at the James Altucher Show. I have with me a very special guest, comedian Jim Norton. Jim, welcome to the show.
1: I'm glad we could finally uh, schedule this. It's amazing how long it's taken us. I'm happy to be doing this.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited. And 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 Jim, you have a lot of stuff going on right now, but I want to I want to talk about when we first met because I have a very specific memory. And everybody knows you from, you know, Opie and Anthony, Lucky Louie, you you have a ton of guest appearances on basically I feel like every TV show out there. But I first met you, you moved into town when we were like 10 years old and you yeah. were the new kid in the class. And you were instantly funny. Like, everybody... I, th- I remember specifically on the first day, everyone was saying, this guy's going to grow up to be a comedian. Like, did you always want to be... I-, I don't know if you remember this even. Like, maybe you were uncomfortable. You got everybody in the class laughing on your very first day in school. You were the new kid.
1: I don't remember that. I remember it was, I think, Halloween of uh, fourth grade was my first day there in North Brunswick. And... Um, I don't remember what I did. I, I just remember wearing a Darth Vader costume. And I wanted to be a comic back then. I, I don't know if I knew what stand-up was yet, but I know like I, I, the idea of being funny was kind of always like what I like, identified myself with, even as a kid. It was that feeling you got. that kind of got the girls to notice you. you know. And uh, my, my memory of you from back then was that you were a chess player. And I remember we were talking, I think you were in the chess club, and I was fascinated with Bobby Fischer. And uh, I said, do you think you could beat Bobby Fischer? And he said, well, if he spotted me a rook. I'm like, do you think <laughs> you could beat Bobby Fischer if he spotted you a rook? And you're like, yeah, I think so. With a rook advantage, I probably could. And for some reason, I've remembered that for 40 years.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and I, I was really cocky back then. So probably if he spotted me a rook and a few pawns, I could handle them, But uh, yeah, you might be, be right So you knew you wanted to be a comedian back then. And it's in, what's yeah. interesting to me is that you were, you know, a lot of kids are funny. But, like, it was so so, like, everything you said was hilarious, and I remember that, and I also remember you were obsessed with the band Kiss, like those two things. You were funny, and you were obsessed with the band Kiss, and it's like the same thing now. Like, you're a comedian, and you're still obsessed with the band Kiss.
1: I am and now I'm obsessed with Black Sabbath, and there's a lot of other obsessions I have, but yeah, there are certain things I just never gave up on. And um, I've met KISS individually, and I've interviewed them all individually, except, oh yeah, fall too. But I've never actually got to meet them as a band, so that's still part of my obsession. But uh, I, at that age, I would have these weird daydreams of KISS where it, was, it, well, it wasn't sexual. It was just that they would kind of beat me up and hurt me and throw me down the stairs, and that they would hug me and love me and make it all better. And I've told that story for many years because it's true. And I remember we interviewed uh, Opie from Opie & Anthony made me tell Paul Stanley, and he made me tell Gene Simmons those stories, and they were really humiliating to have to tell Paul Stanley. So we, we interviewed Paul, and then we walked on 57th Street with him, and um, when he was, before he got into his truck, there was a big crowd of people, and Opie got Paul Stanley to hug me in front of uh, a whole bunch of fans on 57th Street. It was really creepy. But I was kind of happy he did because I figured that was one, like, from childhood that I get to check off, you know? So,
0: so it's like, it's like a bucket list. So, like, forget about all the prostitute stuff. Like, this is like a big bucket list moment that Paul Stanley hugged you.
1: Yeah, I've gotten all four of them. I've gotten H. Peter, uh, Gene as well. I got a picture of Gene hugging me on stage, uh, in front of 3,000 people because, uh, he had been, I told the story in Happy Endings, but he had been kind of a d- to me when I was going to take a photo with him years ago, so I went on the air and I just kind of ranted and raved. And then I was doing a live event uh, where I was Gene Simmons was like the host and I was one of the judges. And Gene didn't remember me and he was actually being really nice to me. So some fan was heckling Gene from the stand, from the audience, and so Gene stopped the show and he's like, "What are you saying? Do you want to come up here?" And the kid jumped up on stage and grabbed the mic. And he goes, I want you to apologize to little Jimmy Norton for being mean to him. And not. And I was like, dude, it's okay. So I was so humiliated. So Gene knew something had happened, but he didn't know what. Like, he didn't remember blowing me off for a photo two years earlier. So he's like, uh, Gene says to me, what would you like to happen right now? Because, like, there's 3,000 people watching at the Electric Factory in Philadelphia. And I was like, well, how about a hug? So he walked me out into the middle of the stage and hugged me in front of all those people. And it was really, it's a great uh, And and how did you feel
0: at that moment?
1: (laughs) It was wonderful. It was so fun because, A, that the fan stuck up for me, which I thought was so great. And, B, I knew Gene had no idea what the hell was going on, which I thought was kind of funny. And uh, I, I got pictures of it, which is even better. I knew that there was people snapping photos of it. But it was like a surreal moment. Like, how often do you get to, like, have these little little silly weird moments from childhood kind of come true, you know? It didn't mean anything. It was just fun. I
0: don't, I, I think this, for me right now, this is a silly little moment from childhood coming true. Somebody from my <laughs> class that I get to interview who's, like, a world-famous comedian. Like, you're the funniest guy I know.
1: Well, thanks. I'm getting there. I mean, uh, you know, there's still plenty of things in my act that need a lot of work. I mean, uh, well, I, I like, a like what? Let, let's
0: talk about that. What? What? Like, so, so, actually, let's let's reel it back. You wanted to be a comedian, but what happened? You dropped out of high school. You had a suicide yeah. attempt. What? What was going on? Like, why did you? You you didn't really talk about the whys of the suicide attempt in your in your books. Like, what was happening at this pivotal point? Because right after that, you became a comedian.
1: Well, it wasn't even, you know, to be honest, it wasn't even the most sincere attempt. It was one of those... Oh, it was an insincere
0: suicide attempt.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was more notice-me. It was, you know, that, uh, you know, just that attention-seeking nonsense, really. I mean, there was absolutely nothing, like, you know, genuine about it. If I wanted to do it, I think I would have done it. It was Uh, just one of those, you know, things for attention when I was a teenager. But I wound up in rehab, and I wound up dropping out of high school, um, you know, so I have no Edu- no formal education past high school, really.
0: That, that's great. I'm, I'm, an, I'm a big advocate of that because look what happens. Then you have to sort of blaze your own path. You have to kind of figure it out. And what you well, did figure me- out was become a comedian. Like, how did that
1: happen? Well, you're. I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, I, I purposely. I kind of knew at that point that was all I was going to do. I was like, I'm either going to do this or I'm just going to. I'm just going to absolutely fail. So I purposely left myself no safety net. Um, I, I'm just like, it's got to be stand-up or it's going to be nothing. Like, once I started, I gave it a few shots. I'm like, this is the only thing I'm ever going to try to do. And, uh, you know, I just started going up to, like, open mics. I had a job, like a little crap day job. I was doing a forklift operating, and, uh, you know, I hated it. I was working in warehouses, doing stuff that was going nowhere, and I just knew that if I left myself no safety net, I would be forced to work in that direction. And I, I just can't it's like You know, in hindsight, you look back and go like, wow, that's been 25 years since I started. But I can't believe that I I actually made myself continue to perform. Because, you know, you bomb a lot when you first start. And a lot of times you're like, I can't do this. I'm not good enough to do this. I should not be doing this. And I'm I'm just really happy that I didn't listen to that, like those crap messages, you know, and I did it. Uh, But if I had a great education, maybe I wouldn't have.
0: And and let me, that's very true. I, I think actually education sort of ruins the lives of, of most people because they get stuck down this one alley and they feel they have to be like a doctor or else they wasted all this money or whatever. But, sure, but let exactly. me ask you, you say you bombed a lot. Now you were, I mean, I don't know how to calculate this, but you're like, let's say 100, you were a hundred times funnier than anyone in school. How? What's the difference between you just being naturally a funny guy and then, going up on stage and trying to do a stand up act, like why couldn't you just go up on stage and be funny like you were always funny?
1: Well, being funny is it's it's a relative thing because it depends on a lot of times your relationship with the person who's hearing you like in high school, you have years and common commonality with the people and common friendships and relationships, so you build uh these these things and these running jokes, and you know you might do a certain voice that you know your friends like because it reminds them of your gym teacher. And when you're doing stand-up, the hard part for me was immediately, I don't have this relationship with these people. Like, I didn't know that when you start up, you have to establish anything. So I would just walk on stage and start telling dirty jokes, and the crowd wasn't laughing. And then as you go on, you're like, oh, I have to connect with them somehow. Uh, There's a lot more to this because there's a million funny people. Like, that's the the only difference between me and, you know, a hundred thousand other people is that I actually did it as a job and learned how to do it professionally because there's a million funny guys out there. Like, you know, it's a matter of just, you have to be willing to take it in the face for a long time. Uh, You have to learn how to build those relationships because a lot of guys think, hey, I'll just walk on and be funny. And maybe that works a few times, but like, as time goes on, that's not going to work. You have to learn. You know, like Bob Newhart's an anomaly. He was the number one selling comic in the country or whatever after a couple of months. But, you know, I guess, you know, the world was a little different back then.
0: But but Bob Newhart's interesting because he kind of did it, you know, through an album with these fake phone calls he would do. Um, You know, I don't know. Was he like a stand-up guy before he had his albums out?
1: That I don't know. Um, I I think one of his albums was stand-up, wasn't it? Didn't he have two number one albums at the same time? with the number one and the number two at the same time? The only time a comedian's ever done that? Uh, And and I think maybe one was phone calls and one was kind of storytelling, and he just resonated with the audience. Like, for whatever reason, for him, that relationship was instant and natural and immediate. But I think for most of us, it is not. Um,
0: You, you, you knowing that right there is interesting because he put out those albums I think it's like 52 years ago so clearly you've studied the history of the art form and did that did did you you obviously started doing that before you were doing stand-up or or not did you start getting really into it beforehand
1: no I mean I, I enjoyed it like as we're talking right now I was watching a Sugar Ray Robinson documentary so, I hit freeze frame on my uh, television so we could talk, and Woody Allen is on the screen because Woody was talking about Sugar Ray Robinson. And when I was a kid, my mother worked at the library when I was about 12, North Brunswick Public Library. And uh, she would bring I, records home. I was a customer home. there? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, you know, we all went in there because it was before the internet. So, you yeah. know, if you wanted something, you'd have to go in there and actually reference it. And my mother would bring home these records, the Woody Allen Three Record Nightclub years today. So, um, I kind of had an appreciation for guys like Woody Allen. Uh, I was obsessed with Richard Pryor. I loved George Carlin. I loved Robin Williams back then. You know, his re- his album, Reality, What a Concept. The history of it, I learned more about it as I got older and as I went on. You know, I, I loved Rodney and all those. I don't think I knew who Newhart was back then or Mel Brooks or any of those guys. Mel Brooks I knew from his movies. But a lot of guys, I, I think a lot of the stand-ups I learned more as I got older.
0: Well, okay, so now you started doing stand-up, and what are are some ideas, even for people who are like public speakers, how do you connect with the audience? How do you kind of establish that very quick rapport with the audience so you can get them going?
1: What I have found works for me is the audience likes to think you're confident. Um, And one thing to remember is, like, they don't know if I'm nervous. They don't know if I'm unsure. They only know what I show them and what I tell them. So sometimes there's something called act as if. Like, if I'm a little bit nervous, act as if I'm confident. And I don't mean cocky. I mean just, you know, don't walk up there and be sheep and act like I don't belong up there. You know, um, a lot of times I'm honest, though. Like, if if something goes wrong, I'll acknowledge it. I find the honesty helps me a lot. Not to say, like, I'm nervous, guys. Like, I, I wouldn't really say that for the audience. But if something doesn't work, or if I'm uncomfortable with something in the room, a lot of times addressing it helps. You know, so I, I try to be honest about my surroundings, and you know, project some kind of confidence. Because honesty gets you so far. Like your crowd doesn't want to hear, like, "Wow, I'm forgetting my act." If you're, you know, they don't want to hear that. Shit. You got to kind of, you know, uh, you know, you got to be smart about it. But I, I find being honest helps a lot about what's going on around me. Like you know, if a table of people is talking. I can't pretend they're not talking. If the sound sucks, I can't pretend it doesn't. If the lighting is bad, or if I feel ugly, I can't pretend I don't. So I kind of tell people like that. Um, you know, does that make any sense? I, I know I'm going be kind of... Yeah, well, that could be really funny.
0: Saying, I'm like say, um, ugly, could be funny. It's almost like nobody... It's like Carrie Fisher says, nobody wants to laugh at, like, a really good-looking rich guy. But uh, so, so it's sort of like this idea of removing skills... make something comedic but I find when I go to open mics and every single comedian says oh my act is sucking right now That that I find that that's not very funny when when they do that oh they
1: all say yeah I guess it's too many people it's like anything else it's too many people are doing it and too many people see sometimes people will see something that works in another comedian and they'll try to adopt that little personality quirk on their own and that's kind of comes off as not genuine, but, uh, you know, anybody, too many people doing anything. Like, open mics are tough because, you know, t- how many people can you hear talking about relationships? How many people can you hear talking about driving or marriage or whatever it is that they're going to be talking about at an open mic or anywhere else? You know what I mean? Like, anytime you're seeing 10 comedians in a row, you're bound to see pattern. Uh, that you know, if it's ten black comedians in a row, you're going to hear a similar take on race. Or if it's ten women in a row, or ten white guys in a row, you might hear a similar take on on you know whether it's relationships or race or politics or whatever. Does that make any sense? Like, yeah, many yeah. one thing see- in a row, you're going to see similarity. It's
0: it seems like you were able to overcome that by kind of finding the edge of honesty and going beyond it. Like, honesty is really a big part. Of your show. It's like, you know, obviously I'm referring to, you know, all the prostitution stuff, the sexual stuff. Uh, sure. You go beyond the edge of what most people are willing to talk about like you're not just funny you're you're this extreme almost radical honesty kind of dysfunctional radical honesty combined with you know comedy and and i'm wondering like how what comes up in your relationships when they hear your act and they know your act and they know who you are like how do they how do girls or women deal with that
1: well you know it's it depends some of them don't like to be talked about in my act. They don't want to be talked about. And I never mention names. or I never connect real people to these events. But I'm at a point now, because I'm doing it for so long, that women I kind of meet now know what they're in for. They understand who they're dating or who they're going on a date with. So, again, while I won't blow up somebody's personal information ever, they kind of know it's like if we do something, you know, crazy sexually, you might wind up hearing about it on a (laughs) CD you'll never hear your name referenced, and you'll never hear any connecting information referenced. but people by now kind of know me. And, and I date women who tend to know and are familiar with my material and my, my, uh, sexual stuff. It's a big thing because it's a big part of, of what I talk about. And I don't want to date somebody. I'm, I'm all too old to have to explain myself like, well, no, this is why I like that. You know? So I think if I could put it out there in the stratosphere, Nobody can complain. Nobody can claim ignorance, you know, because I'm, I'm at 46 now, man. I'm tired of – you don't want to go through this thing where you have to tell people. and There's nothing worse than having to explain yourself to somebody and be apologetic about what you like or who you are. You know, it's embarrassing and it's, it's irritating. Sorry, <laughs> well, you sorry, know, there's, there's, there's a certain a kind
0: of spiritual aspect to that, and I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, but, like, honesty – freeze you in a real big way like it's like you say you don't have to explain yourself you don't have to keep two or three or five lives sorted in your head and it's almost like obviously you and i are the same age we're too old to to have to hide anything it's too much work
1: it's nice to not have to hide it it's nice to not worry oh like even things i was sneaky about of course Like, you know, one of my ex-girlfriends caught me dirty texting with someone. Like, and she knew I wasn't sleeping with this girl, she could tell by the text that we weren't actually physically hooked up. And it caused a big fight, and it was a really ugly thing. But she was hurt and betrayed. But she's like, why am I surprised? like, you know, I know what you're like. I shouldn't be surprised. So she was pissed off at me, but we did survive it. Because it's not like some woman who's married for all these years— well, like, you know, imagine explaining Larry Craig must have had to do when he got home. You know, like, uh, why are you putting your foot under another man's stall? Because he is probably liked that and had probably lied to his wife. I'm guessing he's bisexual. I don't know what he is, but I'm guessing, and he probably could never be open about that, so he had to lie and cover. But I always feel bad for guys like Travolta, who, uh, again, I, I don't know for a fact what he is. My, my you know, I, I, my opinion is that he is probably gay. It's just, you know, it's just an opinion from what I've read. But the torture, if that's true, of him being gay and having to live this leading man life and really just wanting massages from men and worrying that his wife is going to find out, like the torture of that. Like, I I think of that guy a lot. And it's like, God, as great as it is to be Travolta, it's got to be awful, too. I'm sure there's a lot of times that he just wishes that he was not famous just so he could probably do what he wants to do.
0: Right. And, and, you know, like you say, you're 46 and you're too old for for this kind of lying. These people are older than 46. Like Larry Craig's like 100 years old or whatever. He's been doing this. He's been doing this lying forever. And imagine the burden. Like it is a very freeing thing to be honest. Like I just know for myself, when I started kind of writing in an honest way, it was enormously freeing for myself. And it actually created tons of opportunities for me because people knew they were going to get what they saw. There, there was nothing I was hiding.
1: Well, I know, especially in this day and age, where everything is revealed eventually. Like, you know, the media are such a pig that they, we, you know, we have no respect for each other's privacy at all. Like, I'm lucky where I happen to kind of throw my own garbage out there. But a lot of people want privacy, and nobody respects the privacy of anybody but themselves. Like Ben Stein. Look what he's going through now. There's a woman who used to be an escort, but she said Ben Stein is trying to sleep with her. They're going texting back and forth. But now Ben Stein's dirty text messages show up in the New York Post, like or his attempts to whatever. And it's like, that's the kind of people we are. Like, we want our own privacy. But when it comes to Ben Stein's text messages, or Tiger Woods text messages, we think that, like, we have no outrage at all about them being in the newspaper. Donald Sterling who look is a scumbag but we have no qualms about his private conversations being played just because we don't like what he's saying like so we kind of you know we need to stop obsessing over the fact that we have the right to have our own secrets when we're not respecting the rights of each other to have secrets does that make I, you know
0: yeah it I, makes I sense to... but and you know it's never going to change it's never it's only going to get worse cuz that's right. the way humans are we're we're gossiping creatures
1: we really are, and I'm one of the few people. And you know, boy, did my a lot of my fans were pissed at me for this. But when the NSA, when when Snowden, you know, came out said so they were spying, I've been praising them. Good. I'm so happy they're in everybody's business because now maybe the nosy idiot country that we are will wake up and do something about this invasive. Higgish culture we've become. Now, like, I know the government's different. Like you know, when the government does something, it's much different than a bunch of people being curious about who Justin Bieber's sleeping with. Like I know the legal differences, but it's just this this ugly voyeurism we've developed. Hey, let's not be shocked when the government is displaying that ugly voyeurism on us. I mean, it's, we do it to each other. You know, we, we tattle on each other. You know, the, the, the government didn't take Ben Stein's text messages and print them. Some woman. Gave them to the media, and the media thought this should be printed, and they put them out there. The same with you know Tiger Woods' stuff and Mel Gibson's phone call. So I find that I kind of cut a lot of that off for myself because I give it away myself. So there's nothing interesting for people uh, about getting information on me. You know, plus I'm not famous enough, but you know what I mean.
0: Well, you are you are famous enough. You're you're literally everywhere. You're kind of like a a mini master of all media. Like I've seen you, I mean you had best-selling books. It's funny you say you're 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 you know you're not famous. Like you've had two best-selling books. You've had you know four HBO uh, specials like with your series. You've been on Lucky Louie. You you've been in tons of you know. Movies, Opie and Anthony. Every time I turn on a TV show, you're, you're you've got a guest spot. I just in the past week I've seen you on Inside Amy Schumer and and Louis. Like you're everywhere. So how come you still don't think you're famous and that you have more to improve in your act? Like what what's next that you're gonna improve?
1: Well, you know, I guess when you're close to a situation and when you are li- living in it, you don't feel like you're doing anything. Uh, I don't know. I-, I guess you don't see the growth. It's like when you lose weight or you gain weight. You don't notice it as much as somebody who doesn't see you for five months or six years or whatever it is. So I feel like I'm barely hanging on by a thread. Like, and I know that that's not rational. Like, I-, I know that I'm saying something that is not necessarily logical, but I'm just telling you how I feel. You know, Sometimes we feel crazy, irrational, crap. And and I feel like I basically uh, am am fairly anonymous and that, you know, I know people know who I am and I have a fan base, but I feel like, man, you have made almost no impact and you really, really have a lot of work to do. And maybe that's what keeps me motivated. Um, I don't know. But uh, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, you say that, and I guess because I haven't watched these things, like I haven't seen myself on Amy's show. I've seen one sketch that we did in the pilot. And I saw like one or two of the Louis Poker scenes, but I don't really watch anything that I'm on.
0: Yeah, Amy interviews you in in the show.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know we did do that. And we I also we did a couple of sketches uh, last season, and she. I love Amy. Uh, she she actually just had me do a scene with her and Bill Hader in her. Uh, she's doing a Judd Appetow film. Yeah, Trainwreck. Yes, and uh, she, she's such a good friend. You know, I really I really love Amy Schumer, and, and, and she put me in a, a really funny scene. So, uh, I mean, that I'll probably see. If I get invited to the premiere and I make the final cut, that I'll definitely see. But I just try not to watch anything and I try not to get excited about anything because I figure it's all going to go away. So, why get too used to it and enjoy it? You know, it's just my stupid negative thinking, I guess.
0: It kind of reminds me of of like what Jay Leno has said, where he always does stand up, and he always puts the money from the Jay Leno show, or he did put the money from the Jay Leno show in the bank, and he would never touch it because he was always afraid he was going to go broke.
1: Yeah, that is Jay's a, a workhorse. You know, we've talk, been talking about him a lot lately because I haven't seen him since the show ended, and I'm guessing he's just out doing some dates and working on cars. You know, because that really is a passion of his. But I'd love to know how he's filling the time because he so loves to work. Like he loves being Jay Leno, he loves doing his his, his gigs, and um, you know he's the non-laziest guy in, uh, in in show business. So I would love to know how he's adjusting right now to all this free well, time. It's got to be driving him crazy. And
0: again, though, you're a pretty hardworking guy yourself. Like you're about to do, uh, I know San Francisco soon. Um, you're you're touring constantly. On the road. So, in addition to doing like scenes here, scenes there. So, so when you say you have room to improve in your act, obviously everybody in every career has has room to improve. But what do you think is like the next thing you need to improve in your act? And and how do you what go I, about improving?
1: What what I want to do. What, uh, one specific thing I want to improve. Like I don't like a guy like Colin Quinn. I think is so brilliant. Uh, A, the material he writes is just smart and intuitive, but the thing that makes Colin so great, and and I've said this about Colin before, is he doesn't do the audience's emotional work for them. Like, if I'm talking about anger or, or something that makes me angry, I want to do the jokes without doing the emotional work. Like, it's not my job to tell the audience how to feel. So do a joke about being angry without displaying anger or do a joke about something without displaying the emotion. Like, I don't need to do that for the crowd. They can make up their mind about it. It's just, you know, it's just something that comes with being a comedian and performing year in and year out. And, and Colin is a master at that. But you don't ever want anger to block your creativity And you don't ever want to come off as the angry, you know, because that's boring to people. When they immediately know what emotion you're going to come out with, it bores them. So that's something I want to improve on is coming from a point of view too consistently. Um, You know, as human beings, we're all complete people. So you want to kind of display a more complete side of yourself. That's all. And And I guess that's just like anything else. The more you do it, the better you get. So that's an area that I need to improve on.
0: Well well it reminds me of like let's say maybe the the Louis CK bit where he's um, talking about the environment but he plays two roles like one role is god and god is like yelling what did you do here and so in some sense he's playing a character to display the emotion as opposed to himself displaying the emotion
1: Right if you're doing a character absolutely if you're doing a character or something responding to the other bit or the you know either yourself or the other character That's a lot different than ranting at the audience. And I I don't really rant at the audience anymore. But my last special, American uh, Degenerate, when I edited that, like, you know, there was a bit about the school shooting I did where I I kind of attacking the disgusting press coverage. And I, I edited a good amount of that out. Only because there were moments in it that seemed too preachy or too self righteous. And I was happy that I caught that. I'm like, that's not my job. I mean, I want to make a point when I perform. But it's like, you know, my job is to be funny. Cause any horse's ass can stand up there and just make a point. You know, that's not my job. My job is not just to make a point. It's like people are paying to see me, yeah, do what I do. But they want to, at the end of the day, they want to be made to laugh. So, if I want to make a point, I have to do that coupled with being funny. So, if I caught myself being a little preachy, you know, I look for a couple of lines, if you can get away with it. But if it was like, you know, two lines too many or something that felt a little too speechy, I took it right out. And uh, I was very happy that I, I caught that.
0: Do you feel do you feel you caught that more in American Degenerate than in the special before that? Please be offended because there I feel and please be offended. It was hilarious and very funny, but there's definitely you're angry in there.
1: Yeah, there's probably moments I can't think of the bits as much. Um I listened to that again recently, that special, and I I watched a little bit of it. And I was like, "Oh, this is a good special." Like you know, once I watch a special and I'm done editing it, because I have to be through the whole editing process, once that's finished, man, I immediately don't watch it again. Um, I just don't look at it again. There's stuff I've shot that I haven't seen in years. So I'm trying to think with a merit with uh, Please Be Offended. It might have been, yeah. I think I was more aware of it in American Degenerate. I was more conscious of it. But, like, you know, again, you improve... As you get older, you improve the more you do it. And, you know, so the next special after this, I'll be even more aware. You know, it's just these little, you don't ever want to get caught in a trap and not be able to get out of it. You well, know, that's, that's something you want to avoid. So I figure if there's weaknesses I have as a performer, if I'm working on them and getting stronger and getting better at them by the next special, then, you know, I'm doing well. Because every comedian had, like, I, I'll look at Carlin stuff. And a lot of people liked his older stuff better. I liked his later stuff better, the newer stuff where he was angrier. But I, I noticed the improvement in the writing and the way he would deliver thoughts. And, you know, it's that you get smarter as you get older. That's all.
0: Well, well. so so you've mentioned um, several times Carlin as a big influence. And uh, in your second book, you, you started it off actually talking about Carlin. Do you um, – do his idea of kind of rewriting the act every year or, you know, how, how has he been an influence on you?
1: Well, I mean, I just get so sick of material very fast because talking on radio five days a week, you get very accustomed to saying different stuff all the time. I mean, we all repeat ourselves, but, you know, every day you're talking about different news stories and it's a different conversation, even if it's the same subject, it's still a new day. But with stand-up, you have to do the same jokes over and over again. So yeah, I, I, uh, I shot in 2012, I shot Please Be Offended, 2013, I did American Degenerate, and I want to do a new special, and I have probably been ready to shoot since May, but or actually maybe April, but the network won't do it, because I just shot in August, so they, they have to wait at least a year, you know, they can't just put you on 10 months later, it, you, know, you know, it's stupid, it's not just about me, there's other performers... So hopefully I will shoot something by October or November. So I would love to do one a but, year. That's kind of the goal.
0: But, Jim, why don't you just shoot it and then sell it on your website? I mean, I know it's not, you know, there's Louis C.K. did it. It was great. But why always depend on the network?
1: Well, Louis is, is a an anomaly. Louis can do that. Um, Aziz did it. Jim Gaffigan did it. But these are guys that have, like, I have a good fan base and a good following. But these are guys that simply have bigger followings than I do. So realistically, I don't know how much I'd make, um, you know, because a special probably costs 150000 to shoot, something like that, to get it done well and to edit and stuff. So just to make your money back, you, have, you know, you have to sell a lot of $5 specials. So you have to start off, I think, with a base like Louis C.K. or like Disease and Sorry, or one of those guys. Kevin Hart could do that. I mean, Kevin's in the theaters, you know, and Gabriel Iglesias is just going into the theaters. You know, I'm realistic about where I am. I have a good fan base, um, you know, but I'm not on the level of a Louis C.K. where I could just go on my website and know that I'm going to make, you know, $500,000. I mean, he, he pulled that off. I think he did better than he thought he would. But, you know, I, I don't think I'm there yet.
0: But, you know, like when, when when you guys were both doing Lucky Louie, I sort of feel like you were – I don't want to say at the same level because who knows what that means. But, you know, you were both kind of at this similar point in, in your career doing this interesting show for HBO and then it got canceled. And then he went on to do Louie, which sort of surprised everyone, I think, how amazingly successful it was. Like have you thought about, you know, trying to do a show like that or, or – you know, what, what did you think of that kind of breakout that he did uh, with Louie?
1: Well, you know, the show I'm doing on Vice now, it's on vice.com, and it's a talk show. And it's, it's me doing a monologue and interviewing guests, and I feel that that's a great vehicle for me. Louie did his thing. The thing about Louis that works is Louis writes it, he directs it, he edits it. Louis can do everything on a set. So Louie had a deal where uh, he said to the network, I'm not interested in notes from the network. So he just turns in completed episodes with no notes at all from them. Uh, you have to have a certain amount of skill to do that. Like, I'm funny, I can write, and I can be in a show, but I don't know how to edit or direct. Like, there's things that Louie did in that show which enabled him to have 100% control. There's almost nobody in show business that has that. But when you look at the results, it's a great thing for all of us because it shows that you let a funny guy do what he knows how to do and you can get great, great results out of it. So uh, I'm not surprised at all because Louie knew what he was. He wrote Lucky, most of Lucky Louie. He had writers, but that was his show. He's had a lot of pilots, and I've known Louis for you know, maybe 17 years. So he, you know, he's know, he been doing like these little vignettes and things at the, uh, the comic strip Christmas party for many years. You know, So Louis has always been kind of involved in that.
0: You know, one thing Louie did, though, with this is he basically said no to the network. Like, the network obviously had their list of demands, and he said no, and he was willing to walk away. Like, do you ever feel that, that, you know, do you have a, a hard time saying, if the network wants you to do something, do you have a hard time saying, no, I need this type of creative control?
1: Well, I haven't necessarily been in that position. Like, I had a lot of creative control in this project that I just did. But it was kind of because they've never done it before. So they're kind of like, they're really relaxed with it. They're like, oh, yeah, man, just keep up with what you think is funny. I've never actually had that with a quote-unquote network. But, you know, Louie, I don't think, had that before either. Like, he had a certain amount of control. But when we did Lucky Louie, HBO would come by and give a lot of notes. So Louie did not have total control over that project. He had a lot of it, but not total. He did not have total control. I think he did a pilot after that that did not get picked up by CBS. So Louie had a lot of misses as well before he finally landed and he told them this is what I want to do and they wanted him to do a show so they said okay we will honor what you want.
0: So so when Lucky Louie was canceled I mean you tried you've tried a lot of different things so there was Lucky Louie then there was your your four episodes with uh uh HBO where you were introducing other comics what was what was your biggest disappointment in all this like were you just you know Was it the worst that Lucky Louie got canceled? Or where were you most upset and scared?
1: Well, the frustrating part of uh, Lucky Louie getting canceled, the critics didn't like it. But the audience was growing. Like, Louie broke it down. We've talked about this, you know, for hours. And he understands how, like, you know, how a TV show starts off and it usually tapers off. And what was happening, he said, is the numbers for Lucky Louie were growing every week, which is very rare for a first-run series. And the critics didn't like it, so HBO canceled it. But it had a great following. And Down and Dirty did very well with people as well. It went up a little bit every week, as far as viewers are concerned. But HBO, the only reason HBO, I think, canceled that is... I I got that gig, a guy named Chris Albrecht. Uh, I know Chris very well. I love Chris Albrecht. But he left the network, or was fired... Like that project got greenlit and then Chris got fired. So they honored the four show commitment that Chris had promised me because my relationship with HBO was very good. But at that point, they wanted to put in their own stuff. Or what happens is when a network head leaves, whoever takes over kind of wants to build from scratch what, what they can. And, you know, they just, I think they honored my show. They probably were going to not even honor my show. But I wound up talking to a guy named Mike Lombardo, who was running HBO, and he was very, very cool about it. So they at least honored the four episodes that Chris had said okay to.
0: No, that was great, and I, I encourage people to go back and, and watch those episodes because you introduced some some funny comics on there. What um, who, who yeah, would you Jesse, say? Anthony right now, Jezelnik, uh, Whitney uh, Cummings, uh,
1: per- uh, of course, but and Artie and Bill Burr. Uh,
0: what about like like you uh, have a relationship with Anthony Jezelnik? You 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 brought him on the show? Yes. Um, I, haven't,
1: I haven't seen him in a while. I mean, I saw him in New York. Uh, I like Anthony, though, because he let me do two two episodes of his show. And you always like when friends put you on their projects. You know, I, I did a couple of his. I'm sorry to hear this show got canceled because he was really nice to me. Yeah,
0: and, and he and Amy Schumer, they both started their shows around the same time. And her show just keeps going now.
1: Yeah, Amy's show is a beast. I mean, as a sketch show... I think, you know, Anthony's show, which was really funny. I don't know why it did the work. Maybe they got a complaint or maybe someone at the network didn't like it. But Amy's show just got the right press. And, you know, she's so funny and she's so funny in interviews. And and she is a very original voice because, uh, you know, you can't say, well, Amy is like this one. Amy is like that one. Well, she's attractive. Yeah, but she's dirty. Yeah, but she's honest. She's a lot of great things. So I mean, Amy's show has been around for quite a while. Yeah,
0: I, I would say, I mean, she reminds me a little of Sarah Silverman. I don't know. Uh, what do you think of that?
1: Is she like Sarah at all? I think Amy is more personal than Sarah. I don't mean personable, but I think she's she reveals a bit more of her own stuff than, than Sarah does. You know, and I think she's just a different performing style. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Sarah probably would be the closest comparison because, you know, Sarah is... Very funny. And uh, she talked about herself. I think Amy talks a bit more about her own experiences a little more.
0: I like your interaction with Sarah. I think it was in this season's Louis, and one of the poker scenes uh, was very funny.
1: I think, yeah, I think I've think i done two poker scenes with her. I believe, Yeah, I did one last year or two years ago and then one this year. I lose track of them, to be honest with you. I really do lose track.
0: Now I want to I want to get back to you. You mentioned how the next level of improvement is when you kind of take the emotion out of the out of the um, skit or the bit or whatever. Like, how does that make it funny? I, I'm still not quite sure I understand how taking the, how not doing the emotional work for the audience makes it funnier for the audience.
1: Well, I don't mean take all the emotional out. of it. I don't mean just deadpan or not show sure emotion. But I mean, when, when you're almost by being, if I'm delivering a joke about this, and it's like, you know, and what the f*** are they doing? It's like in the delivery, it's like there's no need to say it like that. What the f*** are they doing? Or whatever words you want to use. We all have the commonality of language. So people speak English, so they understand what I'm saying. I don't have to go, I'm, you know, because when I hear what I read about this, it really makes me angry. You know, the words are the same if I say it really makes me angry. To me, when you're doing too much of the work for them, I just think you're you're leading them too much, and it almost pull, gets them to pull away from you a little bit. I've noticed that because Colin is so good at not doing that, and maybe it's hard yeah, to interesting,
0: explain. Interesting, and you know, uh, you know, it, it also goes along with this idea again of kind of removing skills to 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 be funny. So, so for instance. If you're saying this thing but not exhibiting the natural anger or, or hatred or whatever, it's like you're, you're, re- you're removing some elements of knowledge from the act and giving it to the audience. So, so that makes it funnier in some way.
1: Yeah, I also think people respond better if they don't feel they're being preached to or talked down to. You know, like Carlin would display anger on stage, But look at how silly a lot of his delivery was. He didn't necessarily yell and scream. You know, he was talking about some very angry stuff, but he wasn't up there. You know what I mean? His delivery was fairly, you know, consistent. It wasn't crazy over the top. You know, not that I yell and scream a lot, but you know what I mean? It's like I think Carlin just basically let his words talk for him and let the audience either come with him or not. I like the fact that he led them with logic, as opposed to the, doing their emotional work.
0: So, so how long? So, like right now, do you write every day, or do you have your act all set, or are you constantly, you know, reworking it?
1: Well, I go on stage and I'll just talk about what I want to try on stage. I'm not good at actually writing things down anymore, but I'm on stage so much, so I'll get an idea. Like when Donald Sterling was happy, I'll go, okay. Uh, let's talk about Donald Sterling. So I'll get a few ideas or I'll tweet a few things, and then I go on stage that night and I really try it. But it, it's basically just from trying it on stage.
0: And when you, t- that's interesting. Do you, so you tweet a joke, do you kind of gauge its success by how many people engage with that tweet?
1: No. If I think it's funny, I will do something else with it. It's never a reaction or people going like, hey, I like that. LOL. It's not that. It's maybe it just sparks my memory. Like, a lot of times I'll look back at tweets and go, oh, I can do that. Like, that's how I got my Duck Dynasty bit, because I had tweeted a bunch of stuff. And I'm like, Let me, you know, wow, man, there's a few things that you know, might actually work on stage. But when I tweet, I'm usually not thinking about doing it on stage. I'm just tweeting, because, you know, to me, that's like doing it on stage. You're performing it. You know, you're sending it out to people, and they're enjoying it, or they're not enjoying it. But, uh, you know, a lot of times I'll look back and go, wow, maybe I could use a few of these. But it's not always how I do it. But just usually with something topical. Because in my mind, like, instead of jotting things down at home, a lot of times I'll jot them down on Twitter and just send them out.
0: You mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, the audience doesn't want to see you nervous, which kind of implied to me that you are a little nervous when you're going on stage. Like, what's your usual sort of pre-stage ritual in in the, let's say, 10, 20 minutes before you're going on? And this applies to all public speaking, I think.
1: Yeah, I I think uh, I'm not necessarily, like, petrified before I go on, but I have little... At times, a little jitters, if I'm going to do TV, or whatever. I mean, it's normal. You're supposed to have a little feeling. If you're not feeling anything before you go on, you know, you know, there's something wrong with you. If you're going to go on television and perform and you have nothing going on emotionally. So, uh, you know, I think a little bit is nervous. But you don't want the crowd to see it because they don't want to think like, oh, Christ, this guy's reacting exactly like I would on stage. You know, you want them to feel like you're up there to take things along and you know what you're doing. Right. You got to take control. Yes, to a certain degree, yeah.
0: So now, it seems like big career changes are happening right now for you. So, Opie and Anthony, Anthony just got fired. Now, is it like the Opie and Jim show? What's going
1: on there? You know, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, we're not going to call it Opie and Jimmy. Um, Even though I love doing the radio with Opie, and I love doing it with Anthony, Uh, I just... You know, we'd love to deal with them together. It's, and I would feel the same way if Opie was gone and Ant was still there. It just takes a lot of getting used to. So I really don't know where we're going to wind up. I mean, we've, we've actually been doing better than I thought it was going to go, you know, surprisingly.
0: In, in what way? But like in, in the interactions, in the humor? In what way are you doing
1: better? Uh, and just in the fact that, you know, it's more comfortable than I thought it would be, and, and I think that we are, you know, I, I don't know. It, it, it's just more comfortable than, than, than I would have thought. Um, you know, the flow is good. The guests have all been good. We've had, you know, some really good guys come in uh, in, in recent times, and that, that has helped quite a bit, you know, because a lot of times you can rely on your guests. If your guests are really awful, that is just not as, you know. It's not as good. So we even had Ricky Gervais and Pete Rose came in last week. He was tremendous. And Jim Brewer was in all, all morning today. He was great. But, uh, you know, it, it takes a lot of getting used to, man. A lot of the fans are very, very pissed off because they want Anthony and back. Do they, and I don't blame them. You know, they uh, loved Anthony. So I don't blame them for being angry.
0: Are they mad at you because you're like taking his place?
1: <laughs> no, but I'm not, though, because I was always there. Right. I, I think if they, you know, no no one looks at me like, I was taking his place. I think people know. um, But no, people know that I'm not jumping in Anthony's grave, as it were. Like, they they know enough about the thing. Like, I've been on podcasts uh, for the last couple of weeks talking about it. And I think they know how I feel, which is really I'm bothered by it. And and I'm very, very frustrated by it. And a day hasn't gone by that I haven't even texted with Anthony or talked to him. I mean, we're in constant touch. And um, when his new project comes out, I'll promote. I'll help him promote it, you know, because I want to see it succeed. There's no you know, advantage it, it, to me if Anthony fails. I want him to succeed.
0: You know, it, it's interesting because I guess his project is sort of, from what I've read, kind of like a podcast that he's going to start.
1: Yes, it's kind of a. Uh, it's based in um, based in I, I guess a subscription based thing. But yeah, he's doing a uh, yeah. I guess he like has video podcast four days a week. I think he's doing it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the afternoon. Because in Long Island, he's got an amazing uh, uh, setup. You know, he's got an amazing thing. He has you know, like like a fifty or eighty thousand dollars worth of equipment and a green screen, and Anthony is ready to broadcast. So you know, Anthony will be fine.
0: So you know, what I wonder is like. So pretty soon there's going to be Wi-Fi everywhere. More and more cars are getting equipped to just download directly podcasts. You know, what's, what's the lifespan of Sirius XM at this point? Like, have you considered doing a, a, a podcast?
1: Oh, yeah, I think of it all the time. I mean, you know, just because it's one more, one more way to get your name out there. I think what Sirius XM has is, is the things they have that are sports-related, whether it's football or baseball or hockey or basketball. Those are hard things to replace, especially for your car. Um, even with Wi-Fi, that's kind of hard to replace. And a lot of the, the, the original talk talent, whether it's, you know, the Opie and Anthony show or Opie and Norton or Howard or whoever else is on there, a lot of the original talk content is just what they have going for them. And I hope they recognize that's the strongest stuff they have. So
0: would you is the stuff you're doing for Vice, is that, like, podcastable? Can they kind of make that into kind of your your podcast?
1: No, well, it's not really – It's a podcast should be a bit more of a specific thing because the, the Vice show is so built on being visual. Like a podcast a lot of times, like Joe Rogan does it right because you're just sitting there having a conversation. Some of on the, the Vice, uh, uh, Vice show wouldn't work as a podcast because it's visual as well. So I kind of wasn't thinking of just audio – when we did this show, but there are definitely parts of it that could have, you know, that could be a, a good podcast. I think.
0: And what's um, what's like the next thing that you're doing? That's that that we should promote. You're 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 going to be doing stand up in in San Francisco, um, in early August. What well, what other stuff do you have going on? What what can I look forward to?
1: Um. Well, as of right now, just the uh, the show on Vice.com. That really is it. And, I mean. That's it. I mean, that's all I'm concentrating on, that and some stand-up are the two main things I really want.
0: You you do a ton of stand-up. Like, is it is it worth it to keep going out there doing the stand-up, or, are you, or do you do it to improve and get material? Like, what's what's the role of stand-up in your life right now?
1: Well, I do it almost every night. I mean, it's always going to be a, a constant with me. It's always going to be something I do that's one thing that they can't take. Like, they can fire me from serious or whatever else I do, they could can, can my show advice. But doing stand-up is something I'll always have. Like, I'll always be able to make a living doing stand-up, which is kind of a nice thing to have. There's no way they can take that. So I'm not going to be broke, I hope. You, know? you can always go out and make a living. It's nice.
0: Well, Jim, once again, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I know we tried to work this out for a while. You've been so busy. Um, I'll tell you, I remember... This is like a stupid memory, but I remember like in sixth grade, for whatever reason, I was obsessively trying to explain to you how all the Kennedy brothers were getting assassinated and you were trying to explain to me about KISS, which was a concept I just did not get. Uh, Oh, really? uh, Yeah. I I, this this memory just sticks out in my head. We were in the school cafeteria and uh I just did not get the kiss thing at the time. Like a bunch of guys with like their faces painted. But yeah, but I now I, I get
1: I it. Yes, and I now understand the Kennedys. So I guess you know the years of who knew that it. You know, thirty-five years later, you would understand Kiss, and I would finally get the Kennedys. <laughs> well, at least <laughs> you both come full circle.
0: Yeah, we're improving. Is life's a constant improvement?
1: Yeah, or well, hopefully, you know, we, you know, hopefully it is. Well, well,
0: once again, congrats on everything. Um Thank I, you, I mean, we haven't spoken in such a long time, but I followed your career. It's really been. Amazing. I was like blown away actually when I first watched Lucky Louie and, and there you were and I was a fan from the beginning of that show. I wish it had continued. I was actually you, really to, broken up. When Louie on the show uh, was getting a divorce at the end with from, from Pamela Adlin, uh, I was getting a divorce and like the, the show really <laughs> impacted me. Like I really felt sad for Louie on the show. Oh, but wow, the, really? Yeah. The, the character really had an impact on me. And uh and your character was hilarious, of course. So so it was, it was you, a great man. show. I, I was sorry it was canceled. But
1: um me too. really depressing.
0: Well, again, thanks a lot and you know, I'm I'm glad you came on. Thank you.
1: All right man, I'll talk to you
0: soon. Thanks so much, buddy. Okay, thanks Jim. Talk to you soon. Bye James. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com. And get yourself on the free insiders list today.